using my traditional mic. There we go, because I wanted to hold the mic in front of my face and not be as demonstrative today. Now, this may, uh, maybe you've caught on, maybe you haven't, but typically when I preach a sermon from a seated position, it's because we're covering some stuff that's pretty heavy. All right, and today that's no exception. We are covering some heavy parts of scripture, and we're covering nearly two chapters. And so there's some parts of it that uh, I'm going to have to summarize pretty quickly, and there's some parts of it that we're going to go more in depth into because as your pastor, I haven't really looked at something like that in depth before. And so uh, that's kind of why I'm picking and choosing and, and trying to craft for you guys uh, a clear understanding of what's taking place in Scripture. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And our last verse is 320. And like I said, uh, that's a huge chunk of Scripture. We're not going to uh, cover all of it. Um, some of it's going to be summarized, and some of it we will exegete. We'll break it down. We're going to get in there into the nooks and crannies and, and really talk about what it means and how we apply that to our lives. But uh, I'm going to be honest with you. It's some heavy stuff today. And some of the stuff I, I know, I know because I know some of you and I know some of your stories and uh, whether you're listening online or, or here in person, you're not going to agree with everything that I say. Uh, I'm going to be really honest with you. I wish that everything that I say, I'm going to say this morning wasn't necessarily true. Um, but where my will and God's will defer, I defer to Scripture right? So that is a choice that I've made because of the faith that I have in God. And so when there are things in scripture that come along that make me uncomfortable and, and, and make me, um, frankly, unhappy at times, I defer to what scripture says because I think that God has earned that trust in my life. And so uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of things. But like I said, we're going to be in Romans 18, or Romans chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to read through 23. And this is how it begins. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, these five verses make one thing clear, that none of us have an excuse to deny the existence of God. Because as these verses explain, even if we haven't been told about God, we see God every single day. We see God every single day in his creation. When the sun rises, when the sun sets, when a bird smiles, when my baby, or when a bird flies, when my baby smile, sometimes birds will smile at you, right? And you think, what a cute bird, right? What a cute bird. But when a bird flies, when a baby smiles, when, when you see all of these natural phenomenon taking place in the sky, when you drive out into the country at night and you just look towards the heavens and there is just this vast expanse of stars and planets and, and things that I have a hard time wrapping my head around and comprehending, Scripture is explaining that through these things we see God and, and, and that by if, if we, we say we don't see God in these things, then, then we're making a choice to ignore the existence of God, right? And so no one has an excuse. No one can say, well, I didn't know because the proof is all around us. But as humans in our foolishness, we chose to glorify things outside of God 
right? And, and primarily our own thoughts. That's verse 22, where it talks about claiming to be wise, they became fools. Primarily what takes place is that we elevate ourself above God. We think that our brains, our thoughts are, are justifiable. We think that, that we are right, right? We are right. And that if scripture somehow doesn't agree with us, then it's scripture that needs to be changed and not us right? Scripture must need to be changed and it's not us, or we're not reading it correctly, or insert whatever reason why the scripture that speaks out against the thing we don't want it to speak out against isn't correct. And because of this, because we have this mindset, because we remove God from his rightful place and we insert ourselves instead, it says in Romans 24 through 25 that what happens to people that do this, specifically these people that Paul was talking about, it says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what we have to realize is that God's condemnation is the natural consequence of ignoring his existence and his righteousness. And it, it was taking place in such a degree that God had abandoned his people. How does that even happen? Because that doesn't always compute with the loving God that so many of us have been taught about, right? But last week we talked about what is the love, what does the love of God look like? It abhors evil and it clings to what is righteous. It hates what is evil, and it clings to what is righteous. Well, when God's abandonment comes, it comes because we have made the decision not to abhor evil. We have accepted evil, and we have accepted evil to such a degree that we've completely turned our backs on God. We've rejected him. And God's character is such that he will not be where righteousness is non-existent, and the unrighteous are unrepentant. I'm going to say that again. God's character is such that he will not be where righteousness is non-existent and the unrighteous are unrepentant. In those moments, he leaves people to their own devices to experience the natural consequences of their actions. Now, atheists, agnostics, and believers of a false God will cry out, how can a good and loving God let such bad things happen? And my response to those is, to the people who, who, who view that, my response is this. How can those who deny the existence of a loving God give God all the blame but none of the glory? How, how can you give God all of the blame but none of the glory? You see, just by asking that question, how can a good and loving God allow such evil things to happen? Even asked sarcastically, logically gives way to the existence of God. Logically, it gives way to the existence of God. And my question would be, why does God only exist for you to have something to sarcastically blame? The answer of, of, of why this occurs, why this takes place, is that we exchange, as Scripture tells us, a truth for a lie. The truth is that we need God. The lie is that we believe that as humans, we can be self-fulfilled, and self-reliant, and that we actually have no need for God. That's what leads us to sin, because we start to view ourselves as a creator rather than the created. 
Understanding this, Paul shifts focus to discussing sin, and we're going to also do that. We're going to follow in line because to recognize the depths of God's grace and the depths of his righteousness and the righteousness of his wrath, we have to understand the depths of our depravity. And so Paul starts this discussion in 24, verse 24, where he says that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. And what that looked like for enough of them to be addressed was found in verse 26 and 27. Now, maybe you're reading ahead, and I'm going to read these verses in just a moment, and they may already be up on the screen. But I want to explain just a little something to you before uh, we break down these verses, right? Because these verses speak against what the Bible refers to as natural relations, okay? It speaks against same-sex relationships. Now, this is a very controversial topic. I don't know that it should be, but it is. It's becoming more controversial in our world every day. It's becoming more controversial in the church every day because what is taking place, and this is my belief, Paul Huff's belief right now, I think that's fair to say, what is taking place is that we are exchanging a truth for a lie, and we are changing what the Word of God says to match our feelings rather than changing our feelings to match what the word of God says. Now, I know not everybody is going to agree with me, and I'm going to do my best to be fair to that, okay? I'm going to be my, do my best to be fair to that, but I'm going to read what's in the scripture. I'm going to talk about some of the different arguments against what scripture says and then tell you why I think that's not true, okay? I'm, that's me laying it out as simply as I can. So Romans 1, 26 through 27 says, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for, for their error. Now, as I just said, this is controversial. This is a really heavily debated topic in the church today and, and a really heavily debated passage of scripture. Many of those who would argue that this does not speak out against same-sex relationships have a few arguments against this passage. The first one is that if you think these verses speak against homosexuality or same-sex relationships, however you'd like to refer to it, well, you're reading this verse out of context. You're reading this verse out of context because Paul was speaking specifically to the Roman church and in speaking specifically to the Roman church and to Rome itself, he was talking about issues that were going on within the Roman church. And he wasn't actually, he didn't actually have an issue with the homosexuality. He had uh, an issue with idolatry in which these men and women were making idols out of other men and women rather than serving God first, right? That's one argument. The other argument is, you are reading this out of context and, and we're reading this through a Western lens and we're reading this through today's thoughts and today's passages uh, and, and viewpoints and, and we're just completely um, misinterpreting that, right? Which I'm going to tell you that in order to interpret this any other way, you are taking, um, you are taking some liberties in the interpretation of the original Greek, which is the closest thing we have to the original text, you're taking some liberties with that translation that aren't there, right? They just aren't there. And if you ever want to have a conversation outside of this morning, I'm willing to talk through all of this with you because um, I understand how important it is, okay? Now, specifically, what they're saying that he's talking about outside of just the idolatry was temple prostitution, which was an issue in Rome with the Greek mythology and the different gods that they served and... Um, it kind of, in some churches, in some ways, 
soaked its way into Christianity, right? And so this is speaking against temple prostitution. Again, not same-sex relationships. Now, here's the issue with interpreting this passage of Scripture in such a way. What it does is it plucks Scripture out of the rest of the entirety of Scripture, and it views this passage alone. It views this passage alone, and it removes the character of God that we see from Genesis all the way to Revelation, right? Which Scripture, frankly, if we're just wanting frankness, is pretty clear. Specifically in Leviticus chapter 18, 22, which says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Now, that sounds super harsh. It just does. And it makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest. This is one of those things. It makes me uncomfortable. And if I'm being honest with you about how I feel, I wish it weren't the case. I wish it weren't the case. But nonetheless, it's what scripture has to say. And so we look at the Old Testament, and I think any time we view the Old Testament, we can't just wipe the Old Testament away, right? The Old Testament has worth, it has value. But I think as Christians, we have to look through at the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. Not only what did Jesus Christ do on the cross, but what did Jesus Christ himself say in the New Testament? And so I look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, which says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Right? And so looking at the New Testament, when there were things that Christ changed, when there were things that Christ came down and said, you're not interpreting this correctly, you're, you're, you're viewing this through your human minds and not by what God wanted you to, to view it as, he corrected those things. And we see that correction throughout the New Testament. I think specifically about the Old Testament food laws, right? Everybody remember Peter's vision? They had laws. There were certain animals you couldn't eat and certain animals that made you unclean. And, and Christ kind of corrected that teaching. And he said, it's not what you put in that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. It's not what you put in your mouth. It's what actually comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. And so Peter had this whole vision and it kind of taught him not only about food, but also about like his bias against the Gentiles and how you can't just look at a group of people and say uh, they're ungodly anymore because of what Christ had done on the cross. And so I want to leave nothing unsaid. I've never made uh, this clear of a statement from the pulpit before, and I'm certainly not trying to offend anybody, but I'm going to be as clear as possible. Crosspoint Fellowship, with me as their pastor, in agreement with the elders, adheres to what I would call a traditional Christian sexual ethic. What does that mean? This means that this views men and women as creations of God and not of opinion. I hope that's clear. This says that men and women were created to be in marriage relationships with the opposite sex. A traditional Christian ethic says that sex is a gift from God meant to be only experienced in that marriage relationship, okay, which we believe to be right. Now, now that I hopefully have made that clear for you, and if I, you need clarification by any means, ask me. I'm going to tell you where the church has got it wrong, okay? Where has the church got it wrong with passages of scripture like this? And this is where we get it wrong. We fixate on, on verses like Romans 1, 26 through 27. And we give, uh, and we ignore verses like Romans 28 through 32, which we're going to read here in a minute, which show us that sexual sins are a type of sin. 
right? And we fixate on verses like Leviticus 18 through 22, which ignore the rest of Leviticus 18, which is an entire chapter. And I would encourage you to read it when you have time. It's an entire chapter devoted to the ways that we as human beings can abuse sex as God had intended it to be in our life. And 22 is one verse that's like mm, that big, right? And we have an entire chapter. But as the church, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we have decided to focus on this overtly sexual sin that so many people struggle with and, and point at that sin and say, this is the one that matters. This is the one that matters. You can do all of these things, right? You can, you can struggle with pornography in silence. And you can have sex before you're married because we know how hard it is and it's just hard and you just, you love people and you want to, right? We, we have that. And, and yes, you got pregnant out of marriage, but again, it's just really hard and, and, and we kind of like, oh, those are okay because those sins happen between a man and a woman. Oh, see, but this sin happened between a man and a man and a woman and a woman and that, that's not good. We're, 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 we don't like that. You can commit all these sins. There's grace for this, but that's bad. There's not so much grace for this. And, and whether you like that or not, whether that is personally you or not, as a global church, we have failed the LGBTQIA+. I, I hope I got all of them. I'm not trying to be funny or facetious. I'm, I, I just, I guess I need more education in that area. But we have failed that community because we, we have said, you can sin in every other way, just don't sin in these ways, right? And we've taken kind of the onus on our holiness away and saying, well, there's grace to be had here, but you really have to stop that stuff. And that's just not what scripture says. See, anytime we live outside God's design for us, we sin. And those sins are described in Romans 29 through 32. And, and there's a huge array of sins. It says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, investor, inventors of evil. Investors of evil too, probably. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Right? This huge array of sins that we ignore because those sins speak out against us. But the majority of us aren't gay, right? And so we don't know what it's like to be gay. And we don't know what it's like to struggle with that sin. And we don't know what it's like to truly love somebody that is the same sex and know that scripture says that's bad and face being called an abomination and, and face ridicule and face rejection and face all the pain and suffering that really does come with that decision, right? And we'll talk about the word decision here in a minute, right? But that really comes with that decision. We face all of, all of that hatred and, and we just... We haven't done a good job. We haven't done a good job of saying, you know what? Sin is sin. And true love abhors all that is evil, has no place for all that is evil, and clings for only what is good. You know, I believe that as part of sin's stain on creation, I don't think that we're necessarily created evil, 
But I do think that we are naturally inclined to perpetrate evil. Again, evil being anything that goes against God's design. Anything that scripture says is a sin. And the fact of the matter is, none of us choose to struggle with sin. None of us do. None of us. I don't struggle to choose with, uh, to, I don't choose to struggle with lust. I never chose to have a pornography addiction. That was a temptation that I can tell you has been natural in me since as young as I can possibly remember, to the point that I went to counseling for it because if I'm being honest with you, I hated myself. There was a point in my life where I thought it would be better to be dead than to struggle with this sin. I would rather just die. And so I go to counseling and I'm telling them, like, I don't want to be alive anymore. Because I struggle with lust, and I struggle with pornography, and I don't want this, but I have this, right? Now, I don't think that we choose temptation. We are tempted. Jesus himself was tempted. Where the choice comes in is whether or not we choose to act on that temptation. And if you think that there's not a choice in that moment, then you are reducing the size of our God. You are reducing the size of our God. I don't think that people would choose, again, to to struggle with sin. I don't think that people would choose to be rejected and ridiculed and and turned away from and, and all of those things, but we certainly make a choice to act on temptation. Temptation is innate. It's naturally within us. But the decision that we have to make, right, the decision that we have to make, knowing that we are are born with this inclination for evil, this inclination to sin, we have to make the decision to be born again. John 3.3 says, Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, there are no excuses for sin. Not even that we didn't choose the temptation. Because we must choose Christ first. We must choose to be born again. I know a number of people, and their story is not my story to tell. I know a number of gay Christians who have chosen not to be in a relationship with a human being because they recognize, even though it speaks out overtly against their natural temptation and their natural love for the same sex, that that scripture is right. And so they've chosen a life of abstinence, a life of service, a life to say, I'm going to reject this life, even though if it wasn't against scripture, it's the life I would choose. There just aren't excuses for sin. And looking at Romans 1.32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, again, this isn't, this isn't such things, isn't same-sex relationships or just sexual sin. It's all sin. Okay, all sin. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'm going to read that again. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And if you can't make a connection to the church today, I don't know how to make it for you. That's just me being honest. 
And so we go to chapter 2, and we look at verses 1 through 11, and this is some, I'm going to have to start summarizing because I'm already over, and I, I apologize. Right? But verses 1 through 11, they make it clear that we all sin, and as we all sin, we all face judgment. Verse 4 says, we cannot confuse God's patience with acceptance of our actions, right? That grace and that forbearance, that long-suffering that God has with us as he hopes to convert us over, basically, to Christianity, as he, as he hopes to bring us back into the family of God, that is meant to call us to repentance. And God's judgment is based on three things. The first is truth. Romans 2, 6 and verse 8 says, he will render each one according to his works. So we will all get treated accordingly to what we do. But for those who are self-seeking, this is verse 8, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those who do not obey the truth. The truth is found, again, in our measuring tool, which is God the Father and Christ the Son. God's judgment is also based on impartiality. Romans 2 through 11 is pretty obvious. It says God shows no partiality. So that's clear. God shows no partiality. And then the third thing that God bases his judgment on is the example of Christ. Romans 2.16 says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. We face God's judgment based on what we do more than what we know or what we proclaim. Say that one again too. We face God's judgment based more on what we do more than what we know or we proclaim. Not only must we be careful about our actions. We therefore must be careful about how we judge the actions of others. Because part of that verse 2 through 11, and I'm popping into the mic right there. Part of that verse 2 through 11 talks about how we're going to be judged based on how we judge. Right? We're going to be judged based on how we judge. And so looking at verses 17 through 24, that makes it clear that we must ensure that our instruction is delivered without hypocrisy. I'm going to read these verses for you, and I want you to be open to them as well. It says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That is the thing that we want to avoid. This is a, a, an address to the Jews, right? The Gentiles are blaspheming the name of God because your model of who God is is filled with hypocrisy is filled with hypocrisy. And I see that in the church today too. There are so many non-believers who hate the church because we are hypocrites. We act like our you-know-what doesn't stink. And that's ridiculous. Which is why when I get up here and I say same-sex relationships are a sin, I also have to admit that I've struggled with lust the majority of my life. And it too is a sin. And calling out a sin isn't about making others feel bad. It's about accountability. It's about what that real love looks like, about hating evil and loving what is good, but also being able to admit that, listen, I know this is a struggle. I know this is a sin in your life, but guess what? I am full of them too. I am full of them too, and I need Christ just as much as you need Christ. I need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. 
I need forgiveness just as much as you need forgiveness. I may not struggle in that way, but holy cow, I struggle. I struggle. So long the church has acted like, well, we've got the blood of Christ, and so we're just, we've got it all figured out. We're so perfect. People are like, no, you're an idiot. I saw you last night. You were acting like a moron. No, Greg, you flipped me off in traffic the other day, right? Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Why are we lying to people? Why aren't we being honest with people? Why aren't we explaining to them that I am in your shoes? I am a sinner. The difference between me and you is Christ and Christ alone. It is grace. It is grace. There's nothing about me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I've done nothing. But God loved me anyways. That is what is available to people. And that is why we have to cling to the truth. That is that God hates sin, all sin. And that all of us have sinned. And that all of us fall short of the glory of God, all of us. And that we all need to repent and that we all need Christ's forgiveness. We all need God to forgive us. We all need it. We all need it. And so if there is a superiority complex within us, it has to be pruned out. We do not deserve it. We do not deserve it. And we have to make sure that we aren't boasting because of our Christianness, right? The look of being a Christian. Well, I brought my Bible to church today and I showed up on time and I stayed after to serve and I did all the things and I look like a Christian. But in 45 minutes, I'm going to go home and I'm going to lock myself in a room and I'm going to turn on my computer and I'm going to watch porn. You can look like a Christian all day long and not be a Christian. And I'm saying that both for Christians and non-Christians who for some reason follow the example of Christ better than a lot of Christians do. And if you think that's not happening, you're wrong as well. But as we see in chapter 3, verse 20, it says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. See, all the law does is show us that we're a sinner. It, it is instructional. It is how we're supposed to live. But what it really does for a sinful creation is show us that we are a sinful creation. That's what the law does. The law tells us we need Jesus. That's what the law does. It will not justify us. It will not save us. Being good, which who, who of us are good? Being good, doing the right things, looking like a Christian, that will not save us. That will not save us. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And next week, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the victory that we have in Jesus over all the sin. And it is there. And it is available. So let's review, because this has gone on forever. One, there is no excuse for sin. There, whoop, nope, I got out. <laughs> That's coming. One, there is no excuse to deny the existence of God. None. You won't get to say, I just didn't know. It's not going to be a possibility. Two, condemnation is the natural consequence for ignoring God's existence and his righteousness. Three, we all sin. There it is. 
which is caused by believing the lie that we can be self-reliant. These sins are various and equal in punishment. We have no justifiable reason to sin. Not I was born this way. Not this is a struggle that I have. And hear me when I say that. I'm not questioning that that's true. And we could talk about that if you disagree with me on that. But I'm not questioning that that's true. When somebody says, this is who I am, this is how I was born, I believe it. You were born with a natural inclination to sin. And being in ministry long enough, being a teacher long enough, being around two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds, you see it. You see it. Sometimes nurture made them that way, but a lot of times nature has made them that way. You see it. But still, we have no justifiable reason to sin. Therefore, therefore, we face God's judgment and understand that it is a righteous judgment, which is based in truth, impartiality, and Christ's example. The law, as given to us, sheds light on our sins. And justification can only occur through Christ. We sin. We sin. That's the end of the story. Except, except for when Christ comes in, gives us that alternate ending where it says Christ wins. We sin, but Christ wins. And that victory, like I already told you, that's what we're going to look at next week. Be here. Be here. Invite everybody you know to be here. If you believe in Jesus, even if you disagree with some of the things I've had to say today, bring them here to hear the word of God next week and to hear the story and the victory of Christ. Let's pray. God, I come to you right now today, and I thank you for this day. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are a God who is based in truth, a God that is impartial, that doesn't show favorites, a God who, who judges us based off of Christ's example that even though we can't meet, we have the opportunity to be justified through because he lived a perfect life and he died a death that he did not deserve so that he might be our sacrifice. And God, that sacrifice is available to all of us. And God, that's the mindset that we need to have, not one of judgment, not one that looks to condemn our fellow creation, because that is not our place. That is not our place. We can call sin a sin without condemning someone. We can deliver the truths found in Scripture. We can let people know that there is grace and there is a love available to them that they don't deserve, but that we've received and we didn't deserve it either. Sometimes it's so hard to talk about the fact that your judgment does occur and that your judgment is righteous. And we know how you have loved us and we know how real you are and it pains us to think that, that you could condemn anyone. But where our understanding ends, God, your truth carries on. And it is found in the word of God. And I believe that it is God inspired.
I believe that it is without error. And at times it's hard to understand and at times it's hard to interpret. And we could argue all day long. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that I have to love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. I know that I need to love my neighbor as myself. And I know that if I do those two things and I surrender my will to your will, that you will use me. You will use me to reach others for the kingdom. And that is available to each and every single one of us here today. God, may we be open to it. May we approach scripture with an open mind. May we listen to both sides. But God, may we, may we be resolute in saying, not my will, not what I want, not what I think, but what God says. That's faith. That's faith. Choosing God even when we don't understand. That is faith. As we stand and worship you today, God, receive this worship as an offering. Convict us of things that we need to be convicted of. Help us to grow and to become stronger in our faith and in our desire for you. We ask these things. In Jesus' powerful name, amen. Stand and worship with us now. If you need somebody to pray with this morning, I'm going to be up front to pray with you. It is very bright this morning, so I understand that. Allie, could you, I, I know that you've got Emma, but could you be back there to pray? Allie's going to be back over here to pray. Uh, Rodney, will you head? I'm gonna, Rodney's going to be straight behind you, ready to pray with you. Joy, could you be over there? Joy is going to be over there to pray with you. I'll be up here. You can use our stage, of course, as an altar. You can sit down and pray right where you're at. Good thing about God is he can hear you wherever you are, right? So pray, pray. But if you need somebody to pray with you, if you've got something tugging at your heart, nagging at you that you need God to intervene with, come pray with one of us. Okay. If you need to talk about what it means to become a Christian, what it means to be a believer of an almighty God, come talk to me about that today. Okay. I, I, I don't know if we'll come to any type of official decision, but you owe it to yourselves to at least have that discussion. Right. If membership is something that's been on your mind, then, then come talk to me uh, after service. I will tell you the Sunday after Easter, we're having a baptismal Sunday. Right now, originally it was two. We're up to four. Okay, we're up to four. Now, this is to give God the glory, not us, okay? But last year, all of last year, we baptized five people. And two Sundays, we're going to baptize four. God's moving. Isn't that awesome? Isn't God cool? That even when we're not the smartest, and I'm talking to myself, right? Even when sometimes maybe we get in the way, God's moving. He's working. So I say that to say if, if you're one that has never been baptized before, if you want to talk about what baptism is, if, if you have any questions about it, okay, in two weeks we're going to baptize at least four, and we'll baptize all of you if we need to, okay? But come talk to me about that today as well. All right, I'm sorry. I've been talking forever. I'll shut up. Let's worship.